0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Johnson, and I'm here today with Devin Fergus, E. Strickland Distinguished Professor of History, Black Studies, and Public Affairs at the University of Missouri, about his new book, Land of the Fee, The Hidden Costs, and the Decline of the American Middle Class. Devin, welcome to the program.
1: Uh, Matt, thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be on.
0: So your first book, Liberalism, Black Power, and the Making of American Politics, gave us this really innovative look at Black Power's impact on politics from the mid-1960s to 1980 or so. What brought you from Black Power to this book about fees?
1: Um, Great question. Um, It's really about sort of following the money. Uh, So the first book, which, as you said, looks at the interplay between liberalism and Black Power, follows the money, um, the ways in which um, liberalism and liberal organizations and projects underwrote the rise of Black institutional power, um, uh, Black power institutional rise. Uh, And so uh, the next project, Land of the Fees, sort of continues that sort of theme of following the money. Uh, And here the the money is the rise of fees and and for conveyances of mobility in in American life, um, housing, education, uh, uh, housing, education, uh, employment and what kicks us from home to school and work: uh, transportation. We see a rise of fees in those four spheres that really erect barriers of mobility for for the average American. So, in the first project, uh, stops in 1980, and the second project sort of picks up uh, at at that sort of juncture uh, since 1980. You see what happens
0: during a dynamo of, of liberalism, and the rise of conservatism, the rise of deregulation. And and you you, you title this book "Land of the Fees." So when you're talking about fees, what what sort of stuff were you actually talking about?
1: Absolutely. So I'm talking about uh, concrete fees. Uh, I, I uh, let's say, for instance, in housing, uh, prepayment penalty fees, um, uh, balloon payment fees, and things like that. But I'm also talking in a broader sense. Uh, not simply fees, but any kind of extra additional charge uh, beyond the principal. And so, so for instance, when I talk about my sphere on on, um, on employment, which looks at the rise of payday lending, which is really the free market sort of um, most ubiquitous response to the to the crisis, generational crisis of wage stagnation, there you see a rise of fees in a form of of interest rates. Or um, or as lenders often say, well, these aren't interest rates, these are actually actual fees. And so fees can take the form of actual fees or take the form of interest rates. Or we see fees uh, in terms of any kind of padded costs, uh, let's say, for the rise of student loans, anything beyond the actual principle. And so uh, I mean anything beyond the, sort of the, the, the actual principle
0: of, of a cost. Uh, that's basically what I mean by fee in, that, in this sense. And, and, you know, you you really point to the 1970s and especially the early 1980s as this major kind of turning point where these these fees really start to kind of uh, to arise. And so what happens in this moment, 1970s, early 1980s, that allows all of these things to really be imposed on uh, on Americans?
1: Great question. Um, really, what happens in a, in a broader sense is we see in a, a rise of financial deregulation uh, and this Financial deregulation sort of creates the space for for the private sector, for consumer financial in, consumer financial industry to increase um, increase the cost and expenses. And, and so, for instance, there was a major court case in, in the mid 1970s, which enables um, uh, banks specifically to charge higher fees and higher rates uh, than they did before. Um, and so, we see the rise of financial deregulation, which occurs in it begins in the 1970s, 1980s, um, and that would be sort of you create the
0: space for the rise of these fees and costs. And so you start the book talking about you know, subprime mortgages, which you know Americans now uh, kind of understand what those things are. But uh, you, you point to this law. That's passed mm-hmm. in 1980 that most Americans have probably never heard of, uh, that seemed to just change everything. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this really kind of boring sounding name that's just so important, which is the Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act of 1980. Thanks, man. I'm glad you actually said the actual <laughs> piece of legislation because
1: it's a real tongue twister. So uh, no, you're absolutely right. So in 1980, uh, Congress uh, passes a law uh, called, uh, and it's pronounced sort of DIDMA, that's the shorthand for it. Uh, as you mentioned before, uh, Depository Institutions Deregulation of Monetary Control Act of 1980. Uh, and, and basically, DIDMA is designed to to allow for um, lenders, mortgage lenders specifically, to increase uh, the interest rates that they're charging customers and consumers, and the belief is that this passage of DITMA in 1980 would in, would um, actually, uh, because it has to do with the institutions, would it actually put more money into the pockets of average account holders. So yes, you might be charged more f- um, for a mortgage loan in terms of interest rate. But this money is going to trickle down to the consumer, and so the way in which it was explained to the consumer uh, was that uh, this going to put this is going to actually put more money into the savings accounts of the average account holder. This is why, for instance, uh, the Great Panthers, um, uh, one of the uh, more progressive slash radical groups of the 1970s, uh, actually supported uh, the, this uh, financial deregulation. Of course, it's a, the fundamental belief is that it's going to increase. Um, the savings for the average American. And what we see, actually, is um, is that not simply has financial deregulation not increased the savings for the average American, but in reality, actually, financial deregulation has actually um, driven more Americans deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, and so... Again, the original intent of, of financial regulation was to help average Americans sort of save more. We can look at this law and say and question again the original purpose, original intent of financial regulation in and of itself, it, has it lived up to its original purpose, original intent?
0: Yeah, what's uh, maybe you know why so many Americans don't know about this act is because you know some of the, the provisions really weren't taken advantage of until later on, and so I was wondering you know why don't these subprime mortgages you know, become really popular until later on, like you know, really 1990s. I think that you point to in this book.
1: Sure, it's a great question. I'm going to sort of say um, why most many Americans don't know about it is in part because, okay. as you sort of hinted at, uh, the the law is, uh, it seems complicated, it seems bland, and, and, and even though uh, uh, the, the Carter administration said that this is going to be create a new financial world. Um, Americans uh, in 1980 cared little about this uh, revolutionary law. Well, it was revolutionary. And in fact, as I sort of talk about in my text, uh, uh, news reports buried it um, in, the, in, in the back segments. Um, they were more interested in the, in the retirement of Roger Staubach, the star quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, than, uh, than the revolutionary law, which is going to fundamentally change um, how people sort of spend their money, how people sort of save. And so, even from the beginning. Uh, uh there was a again a lack of interest uh and concern of the of the consumer with this the complicated law. So what happens in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties, there's there's actually nineteen nineties even there's increased deregulation. Uh that the uh, so did but doesn't fully uh, accomplish what uh, what the orchestra didm hoped it would and so there's increased financial deregulation which happens in the nineteen eighties uh and then on top of that what you also find is that there's increased uh, investment, which is coming back to the United States, uh, particularly in the aftermath, uh, I would sort of argue, of the collapse of um, the of the um, of the real commercial real estate market in the Pacific Rim, uh, so so global investors are looking for places to park their money, uh, and they ultimately decide to park it in the U.S. in the subprime mortgage market, and that becomes sort of a, a major a major driver of the rise of deregulation. So you get this law in 1980, another law in 1982, which is probably even is, is at least as problematic and more troubling than did was a, a law called Garn-Saint-Germain, the Garn-Saint-Germain Act. And this law, Garn-Saint-Germain Act, like 1982, it basically codifies nationally um, some of the most um, predatory and abusive instruments of mortgage lending. Things like um, uh, a balloon payment in which there's a large payment at the end of a, of a, of a mortgage loan contract, things like a prepayment penalty, which is so counterintuitive to a consumer that you get penalized with basically for paying your bill early, uh, and and so this law called Garn St Germain Act in 1982 again expands uh, uh, the the mortgage instruments that that lenders are allowed to use in the market and target toward consumers. And the 82 law is even more problematic because um, it's being underwritten really uh, by the financial services industry, and there's a lot of quid pro quo. Between uh, Saint, uh, Senator Freddie St. Germain, who the law is uh, named after, as well as Jake Garn, they're being underwritten really by the financial industry. And so, uh, so it's, uh, one way to think about subprime mortgages is that it's fruit of a poisonous tree uh, because, uh, again, these laws uh, were not written with the consumer primarily in mind, but we're actually with with um, institutional um, investors. and large-scale um, mortgage investors in mind, not the consumer. so these really these laws are not really again
0: designed with the consumer in mind as much as as much as the lender. you mentioned Saint. Germain, I think this is a good point maybe to kind of think about or you discuss who, who are the real villains of this book and um, you, know, you talk a lot about what you call kind of the donor class and it's going kind to of influence on, on a lot of this deregulation. I mean, who in this book could you really point to as kind of the architects of, of this deregulation?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, the architects are I, I would, the architects are sort of many folks. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it didn't it sort of when I sort of embarked upon this project, I had no idea we sort of take this sort of turn. But in each of the sphere I sort of look at, um, you see a rise of influential donor class in one phase. The donor class becomes the architect. Actually, literally, literally, sort of right almost literally, almost literally, sort of writing the laws for legislators that we see with the rise of subprime mortgage lending. In other places, what we see is that once laws are in place, it's the donor class, i.e., the insurance industry, for instance, uh, with my chapter on, on auto insurance, which basically helps to defend and promote a particular industry. And we see this actually too with the Student loan industry as well. Um, in the in the origins of the rise of student loans, lenders were quite skittish uh, with um, the idea of um, of lending money to uh, to college students. Uh, and so, if you could think about it from this perspective, Matt. I mean, here you say to uh, if you're a lender, so I'm going to give a 17 year old kid, young man, a young woman with no credit history no job um, alone and they can pay me back in four years if they finish (laughs) on time or seven years. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just on the face of it, right. Uh, Lenders are very skittish about the terms of that. And so, and so what happens is that the federal government has to sweeten the pot so much to bring lenders in that becomes sort of counterproductive to sort of, to sort of allocate these and distribute sort of, sort of loans. And so, so the donor class the rise of the student loan industry is not there as architects for student loans, but they come in a little bit later once they realize and recognize that the federal government has sweetened the pot so much and it has incentivized, um, underwriting these loans so much that it becomes an advantage uh, for these lenders to, 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 um, to underwrite these loans. So, so there you see lenders coming in at a very late, a, la- a much later stage, not coming in at the beginning, but actually coming in, um, Let's say by the mid 1980s and 19, 1990s, especially though, uh, uh, eager to to defend and protect the industry uh, because uh, because the advantages and profitability of it. But they didn't weren't there from the origins. And then in contrast, let's say, the rise of subprime mortgage lending, in which the lenders were actually architects of the actual law. And so sometimes architects of the law. In the very beginning, we see this the rise of of um, mortgage lenders and um, in depository institutions often the student loan industry is very is is, is is quite different they're very skittish at the very beginning uh, they come in a little bit later uh, to defend a promoter
0: and promote and and prop up the industry um Get it. and yes yeah, the student loan story is really interesting where you you really take a close look at the Reagan administration. What I found really fascinating was, you know, how you talk about how the Reagan administration um, basically was able to group students receiving federal aid into the same category as kind of welfare recipients, right? Just characterizing them as undes- undeserving tax eaters, right? How does the Reagan administration do that?
1: Um, <clears throat> well, it I mean, it does have a cause... I mean, I mean, there. I, I was sort of argue that it's it does that because it it doesn't imagine in terms of the imaginary of the administration. It doesn't imagine uh, middle class white students in need of student loans, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so it's understanding and impression of who the borrower actually is uh, is someone who's fundamentally different than the 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 average borrower The average borrower today is is a is a is a white individual often a white woman um as the average borrower they don't imagine the average borrower uh, in the early 1980s to be a white a white individual they imagine that to be a part of be a person of color so pop mm. this sort of perception and so the so the general view is that um up until i mean the, the student loan industry the, the rise actually student loans Uh, And and more broadly, student financial aid really comes about origins of a really, at the the federal level, it comes about in the 1950s under the Eisenhower administration. And really, since the 50s and 60s, it was sort of a bipartisan understanding uh, that investing in college students was an investment in the future of America, uh, an investment in America's economic future. Uh, but also an investment in America's um, national security. Because much of many of these loans in early, in early years were, had to be in ind- industries and fields which were structured defense, um, the sciences, math, foreign language skills. Um, and so there's a perception that to invest in a college student in the 1950s, 1960s, was to actually invest in America's future. This begins to change really in the 1980s where when Reagan, as, as you sort of mentioned, uh, re, I mean, they, they redefine um, the perception of a student, not as a student as future tax contributor, but a student as a future tax, as a tax eater. Um, and even so much so that uh, now you may look at, uh, you may get your, you get a, if you're, if you have a student loan, this is sort of called an origination fee. So every student loan that you have has an origination fee. Well, the early years of that origination fee, the implementation of it, was originally designed in part to offset federal deficits, and so even I mean even so, and this cap is in the early 1980s. Again, so the, the working perception is that students were des- here to um, not be um, tax. Students, were, students were here were basically tax eaters, and they need to sort of pull their own weight and pull their own share. And we see it with something as 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 an origination fee again, which is designed at sort least of in its early implementation. To offset things like a like a federal deficit, a federal federal budget. Um, so the shift from student as future tax contributor to student to tax eater, again, as you said, comes about with Reagan his perception that students are no different um, than any kind of welfare recipient, um, yeah. and they they're in that and as as a sort of missionary uh, in, in my text that they're they're leeches on the backs of taxpayers. This is actual language coming out of the Reagan administration. People like David Stockman and Terrell Bell, sort of quoting and paraphrasing the perception of 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 David Stockman, Terrell Bell, the Secretary of Education. Stockman is is OMB director, and this perception in the Reagan administration that these students were taxed were 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 leeches on the backs of taxpayers, which is again the actual language. And so, so um, as you said, casting them as the as the um, as the
0: undeserving poor. Yeah, I wanted to bring out there one thing that I love about this book is that it brings out so many um, not just fascinating stories but unexpected stories. And you know, just in the student loan um, chapter, I wanted to bring out a couple of these um, these surprising stories. And one you know that I hadn't really thought about, which is um, about how what are the motivations for the Reagan administration in terms of trans- transferring a lot of this money into student loans, you write about, is about Title IX regulation, which I had never thought about. Um, and so how does the Reagan administration see the rollback of you know federal grants as a way for institutions to avoid Title IX? Yeah.
1: Sure. So actually, some conservatives so in the Reagan administration and outside of it recognized that the shift to student loans might weaken enforcement mechanisms and regulatory triggers of Title IX. And so as we all know that Title IX was passed in 1972, guarantee that no person shall on the basis of Sex be excluded from participation in or be denied benefits of, or subjected to discrimination on any education program or activity receiving federal financial story, I mean federal financial assistance. And so again, the perception was is that if you, because conservatives believe that if you roll back the federal grant program was a way to sidestep, uh, Title IX enforcement. And so again, uh, many conservatives thought that Title IX enforcement wasn't. Was an overreach uh, of of the federal government, um, and so uh, by rolling back the grant program and, and and enlarging the loan program, they could sort of sidestep sort of Title IX. It was a was the working assumption and work, working aim and hope of, of the administration. So, so again, the student loan um, question brings in issues of, of class, gender, and, and and race. Absolutely,
0: yeah. You know, I love the the chapter on auto insurance. And that's something I hadn't really thought about very much either. And and so you write about how the auto insurance uh, industry really drives the wealth grab. How, gap. How does it do that?
1: Sure. Um, and that's because, I mean, auto insurance is predicated as much upon where one lives as much as how one drives. And so, <clears throat> I mean, we, we live in a society ostensibly we predicated on, on, on merit, individual merit, except there's this, this, um, this carving out, uh, in many ways, of the auto insurance industry, and, and, and auto insurance is the, one of the rare um, sort of spaces in the political economy in which is is a it's a, it's a financial product which is delivered exclusively by the private sector, right? But it's required mm-hmm. by law to have, um, and, and, it's, um, and and so and again, if you if you if you own an automobile, then you must have auto insurance. Uh, I, I'm from New Jersey. My family is from New Jersey. I remember my brother, he had just, uh, he was working at a nice job and got his bought a brand-new Acura um, and drove, basically sort of drove it off a lot was driving to Philadelphia to see his best friend. Uh, but he didn't have the insurance card in his car. Um, new Jersey State Troopers pulled him over and proceeded to, to impound the vehicle. He owns I mean, he he owns the car outright, right? But it's illegal to drive without auto insurance if you have the car. Uh, And and so, again, it has this unusual sort of car route in the American political economy. Again, even more unusual than, let's say, health insurance, in which, again, it's a a financial financial product, uh, which is delivered exclusively by the private sector, but is required by law to, to own. And so... The ways in which auto insurance sort of functions is that, again, it's predicated large in large part upon one zip code, and so uh, where you live determines almost how you how much you pay. So if you have some free time, go on something like insurance, uh, and then type in the same exact information: uh, your make and model vehicle, uh, your your age, your gender. All these details and change one, change one indicator, just zip code, and use the zip code for the Toniest, the toniest neighborhood in your community, and then change that from zip code for the, the neighborhood which, which is considered to be the ports. And what you'll find is that there's going to be a, a wide discrepancy in auto insurance pricing. And so, what happens in the auto insurance sort of industry is that, again, a zip code often becomes a proxy for race. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the perception is that communities which are black and brown uh are often charged higher auto insurance rates um uh, and, and so again, this has been sort of um played out and discussed in research uh, across a, a wide a wide swath of um, studies and and, and agencies and, and and think tanks and so the insurance industry also argues uh that uh that if they were to not take certain kind of identity factors in, in, into account, that it would actually have a disparate impact on on women. They say, so yeah, we we may charge more because of zip code, but if we took out all kind of identity factors, women would actually pay more. What that kind of argument sort of elides or sidesteps is the fact that the fem- is the fact of the feminization of poverty. What you find in these poor zip codes often are women. Uh, uh, you, you market you have uh, more more women and more women of color. And So what winds up happening is that again, more women of color often pay, pay more in auto insurance because they're, they're uh, often residing in these poorer sort of neighborhoods. Uh, and so, get auto insu- uh, dip codes become a proxy uh, for race and rise of auto insurance industry. And, it, and, it, and it's consistent in almost every state in, in, in the union. Uh, and so I, I lay out a chapter which talks about the discrepancy in auto insurance in the ways in which we have a, a, a moment of a progressive possibility in the mid-1980s or late-1980s, where both um, consumer groups and civil rights groups and and some um, progressives come together and pass um, a consumer protection policy called Proposition um, 103, uh, which is designed to have auto insurance predicated upon, where, I mean, on how one drives, right, the merits of a motorist, and by how one drives, I mean something, I mean specifically like, uh, do I, how many access do I get into? Um, do I have traffic tickets? Uh, what, well, I mean, how long or far do I drive in terms of my vehicle? These are the merits of a motorist as opposed to simply uh, one zip code. And so Prop 103 passes, designed to uh, have auto insurance primarily predicated upon the merits of a motorist. Uh, and what happens is that, the, is that insurers step in. Uh, and for a whole generation, interpose and nullify the implementation of Prop 103. Uh, and, and, and for a generation, again, continues and perpetuates uh, that, that, that wealth um, extraction from communities of color. And that's basically what we're talking about here the wealth extraction of communities of color on arguments which are not predicated uh, on individual merit, which, again, is the great irony. Uh, that mm-hmm. uh, these, this 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 um, argument about auto insurance uh, being need to be based upon social and environmental factors is the great is is the great fulcrum of the argument. At the same time, in which we're going through the rise of affirmative action cases, we, in which in which uh almost the same populations of people are arguing that merit is the, is, is the is the predicate of, of of a free market society of our society and a society should be based in predicate of individual merit. Um, so and i'm uh, so I sort of teased out the absence of intellectual consistency uh and would in the cost that it it actually costs for community communities of color throughout the country
0: yeah i was actually I was going to ask you about this great line you have here, and since I have it written down, I just want to read it for listeners because it gets to exactly what you're saying here. It really brings it out. Were you right that the fact remained, however, that insurers' bottom line hinged on defending values, the conservatives, moderates, and a growing number of liberals at the time. Found mostly uh, most objectionable, namely the privileging of social and physical environmental factors and identity politics over individual merit
1: um, yeah, ab- absolutely um, and, and and I wish I could say it was sort of quarantined to that moment, uh, but uh, the perpetuation of, and it's called a territorial radius system perpetuation of the territorial radius system still exists today, and so i mean we i, I mean I listen to the president who who, who talks about um having a meritorious system of immigration, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is, which if you want to make the argument, uh, how about some intellectual consistency? And, and here, right. I, I sort of say the argument is, is missing too. Um, um, there is no more commonly held sort of uh, financial asset in the U.S. than the automobile. Anyone who, I mean, nine out of 10 Americans who live west of the Hudson River own an automobile. Right. Mm-hmm. And that number is much larger than, let's say, the numbers of, of individuals who actually um, uh, enter college um, or go to college or or, or who are actually um, uh, beneficiaries of affirmative action. Um, or is the number of people who actually come into the U.S. based upon a, on a, on a lottery system or not merit immigration sort of policy system. And so here we have a, a public policy, auto insurance uh, which applies to almost, you know, as much as 90% of Americans, U.S. US households. Um, so, I mean, much more ubiquitous in terms of the, the disparate treatment and the absence of merit compared to uh, more shiny objects, such as affirmative action in college or or a merit-based immigration system. Uh, and, and so putting these things back in their context and perspective, uh, and yet you still no one sort of talks about auto insurance and this disparate treatment of, um, and the ways in which it transfers wealth uh, again uh, across
0: wide swaths of American of American consumers. Yeah, and you end the book talking about payday lending, and so you know, for and you call payday lending arguably the most hazardous uh, of all consumer loan products. And so you know for listeners who have never taken out a payday loan, I was wondering if you could kind of explain how a payday loan actually works and why they're so hazardous.
1: Sure. So. I'll mean, I'll put this in a, in the in the sort of context. Um I me mean, you you're right. Uh, um very small percentages of Americans sort of take out payday loans. Uh but we also know that forty four percent of Americans, according to um a recent study of the Federal Reserve, uh indicate that um they have diff- they would have difficulty um raising, coming up with $400 for the emergency cash loan. So while very few Americans may actually take out a payday loan, uh, the precarity of the American consumer is sort of one step away from the payday loan. So it was critical in that sort of sense. So uh, how does a a payday loan operate? How does it work? Uh, So uh, you go to a, a payday loan shop and loan store. Uh, Or you can now you can use them online and you basically take you, you, you fill out a form. You can take out a loan for $300 uh, with the promise of paying back that loan uh, in, in, in two weeks. And that's why it's called a payday because it, Average, the assumption is that the average American consumer um, takes out—I mean—receives a paycheck every every two weeks, and so, mm-hmm. uh, so in exchange for that load amount for three hundred, let's say three hundred, four hundred dollars, you write a check to, um, the, to the to the payday lender, and that's critical too. So the payday loan population is not the unbanked, right? These individuals I mean, to take out a payday loan, you have to have two basic things: you have to have a job. Pay to him, right? It's so a check, mm-hmm. and you must have a bank account. And these are throughout much of the 20th century, we consider sort of pillars of the middle class: employment and the idea of a, of a bank account. So that's sort of critical and important to know. So, um, so you provide that um, lender um, this check for three hundred dollars. In two weeks, he he, he either cashes uh, mm-hmm. that check, and is well, the principal is three hundred dollars, but the the amount that you write a check for is often $350, 375 dollars um, And so that, and if you, there's no money to cover that check, you go back to that payday lender and you basically roll over that, you can roll over that loan and take out another loan to pay it for another two weeks later. And so, um, and so the way the, the, the payday loans work is uh, again, you, you take out a loan for $250, $300, the promise of, of paying back that loan plus interest and interest is usually uh, triple digit interest two weeks later uh, the the average borrower um, cannot pay back that loan within, uh, when they get their next paycheck and so what tends to happen is they often as i mentioned before roll over that roll over that um, payday loan um, and so researchers show that um, that a, a, again a payday borrower is far more likely to actually go into bankruptcy than someone who's actually denied a payday loan. So these things are mm. extremely, uh, again, costly and expensive uh, for the for the average, average borrower. And so as a sort of bitch of four, you're, you're actually better off being denied a payday loan than actually take one out, because you wind up uh, being... <laughs> Moving closer to bankruptcy, and the average payday yeah. borrower spends um, uh, more than two thirds of, of of a calendar year actually indebted to their payday lender. And so, again, it's a it's a it's a, it's a thriving industry. Um, recent research show that the industry um, has a brighter, promising future if it can stay outside of, of regulatory coverage and regulatory oversight. And that's the, the the primary concern of the industry, is to stay in the shadows of of financial and bank
0: regulators or the yeah well, that's it yeah I mean so you, you just mentioned that some of the interest rates are in the triple digits right it's just insane interest rates and despite the fact that there are state laws that um, cap uh, interest rates right and these are way over the the caps that state laws set so how do these payday loans um, institutions get around those state laws that set these limits on interest?
1: The ways in which they um, were able to get around the state use recaps was to um, headquarter their, um, place their headquarters or, 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 or rent a charter from banks which had their headquarters in states like Delaware or South Dakota, which uh, had less restrictive rate caps or so had no rate caps at all on the amount of interest that he could charge the consumer. And this is how, again, um, petty lenders were able to circumvent state usury laws. And and state, um, state legislators and state regulatory bodies um, allowed them, in part, to do this, uh, in part because many of these state legislators were getting major campaign contributions and donations uh, from those they were supposed to be regulating. And so... Uh, and So they were able to to to, to game the system, run right around the system. So, uh, I mean, Arkansas is a classic example. Uh, Arkansas had a very strict use cap. Um, in fact, Mississippi had a very strict use cap. In Arkansas's state constitution, again, like the only state I think in the country within the state constitution, um, it 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 capped interest rates. Yet and still, Arkansas was one of the most notorious spaces for. Um, for payday lenders, um, who again, who, again, as Mitch is sort of charge uh, exorbitant interest rates, uh, triple digit interest rates on, on, on their consumers. So if you could do it in a place like Arkansas, which in its own state constitution um, banned um, usury, uh, you could
0: certainly do it in every other state in the union. You know, this book is just a, a maddening book. To, to read, It's hard not to read it and just be frustrated with the deregulation um, and some of these financial instruments that are there. Is, is this just as frustrating to uh, a book to write? I mean, what is it like writing a book like that?
1: Um, it's, yes, it is frustrating because, I mean, there were peaks and valleys is a better way to put it. Um, part of the book um, – let me get back to, to this question about the origins of the book in many ways. Uh, The origins of the book actually started as I was researching my first book uh, as a dissertation. Um, uh, So um, the origins of the book actually starts out when I was a graduate student studying, spending a year abroad, actually, in, in Cambridge, England, and where I lived in a house in which everyone not only came from a different state, but actually almost came from a different continent. Um, mm-hmm. And in that house, there were individuals who were first-generation college students, now pursuing advanced degrees at Cambridge University. And so, for me, it it sort of um, uh, militated against this perspective and view um, that America has some kind of exclusive hold on upward mobility, um, and that America, this Horatio Alger sort of story of myth was something that other countries, um, whether it's the UK, uh, whether it's Singapore or others, were actually also involved and engaged in this idea of upper mobility. And so for me, it it pierced the myth um, that upper mobility was something that was exclusively owned by the U.S. Now, maybe America has exported this in many ways, but it certainly pierced the myth for me of upper mobility. So, as I look externally at other countries and watched how um, uh, the upper mobility of, of, of others first generation students who who are now entering to advanced degrees at, at prestigious universities globally, it also encouraged me to turn a gaze back in the u s and then begin to explore what are the working myths internally about the u s and this political economic system that exist and, and, and and and, and and so I began thinking and researching and writing this, particularly in the 1990s, in which we see um, increased, ostensibly, um, the, well, the, the greatest period of economic expansion in U.S. history simultaneously with increasing economic inequality, particularly of communities of color, but more, but more broadly. Uh, and so this is a part of the sort of origins of this sort of project. Uh, and so... Uh, th- now, then the, the I talk about the, the the valleys and the ravines coming into the, the increased deregulatory policies of the 1980s and the impact that it has on uh, across the board in terms of erecting barriers of mobility uh, with a disparate impact on on, on historically vulnerable populations. Uh, uh, but also, there we have the election of, of, of President Obama in, in 2008, not um by any stretch um a perfect uh, vehicle for one's policies and positions but um but understand the possibilities for for change and with this rise of the CFPB and the dodd Frank Act uh, I, I say specifically uh, as progressive progressive um policy actions. Um and then I mean so So uh, it wasn't simply mad and depressing to write because there were moments of possibility. Um, I mean, I'm writing part of this book while I'm in Washington, D.C., where they're hammering out the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, And I'm talking to principals who are actually uh, on the ground trying to build the CFPB. These are great moments of possibility. And so these are moments of inspiration. Uh, and, And so... Uh, it wasn't simply mad in an essence because I, uh, because yeah, these were these were these were troughs um, of consumer financial inequality, but also thought there was some light in the tunnel. But little did I know, light in the tunnel was a, was actually a, tr- a, a
0: train named Donald Trump. <laughs> 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 so,
1: so yeah, so I think I'll end it right there.
0: Yeah. Well, um, the book is Land of the Fee. Devin Fergus, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks so much.